Episode 122 of the Light Shed Podcast, Richard Greenfield, Walter Pisick, and myself, Brandon Ross. It's basically fall, fellas, and that means Michigan football. No, it doesn't mean Michigan football, in fact. It means what? college football. Oh. and But I do understand what the early start of fall means, which is Michigan padding its schedule with a team that has three wins, which they're a 30 point favorite, 30 and a half point favorite to win. So that's typical Michigan. One, one, so year, I respect, they lost, one year they lost uh, to like Appalachian State or something. By well, doing 30 that. and a half points definitely looks very compelling to me after watching uh, Harbaugh on Instagram all summer. But I but I will say that I appreciate putting a, a I love college football, not as much yes. as the NFL, obviously. Yeah, of course. Not. But. It's but odd that we would start with Michigan that pads their schedule versus Notre Dame, which has a, also a classic fight song, playing Ohio State in the opener. That is which, the game. which is meaningful for the Wolverines, of course. Sure, and for everyone because it's the it's the featured game of the week. We also it would be wonderful. This is a good time to point you out want, audio. Last night, Rich? He, sure, Rich, cue it up while I talk about. You know, a lot of times I get criticized perhaps for ripping on horrible announcers like Joe Buck or Troy Aikman. Um, but the reality is Gus Johnson is a fucking genius. And he is announcing last night when the Nittany Lions uh, had a phenomenal comeback against, you know, Purdue. Not a, not exactly a tough uh, opponent in their own right. Is, is the Notre Dame fight dunk ever coming on here? Is there a problem in the audio group? There we go. Well, I didn't want to cut you off. I didn't want to no, over. No, I didn't like want to lay it over you. I can talk I was... over the music. Okay. Uh, just to, for full transparency, we're starting this podcast about an hour and a half late today because Rich has been having ongoing technical difficulties. This is not the first one. But for our video viewers, you'll notice that Rich, the hue of Rich's actually now that I think it, the color of the face is great, and then the hair looked good before, and then I was getting naked like we. We need help with our Zoom settings, so if anyone's an expert out there, please contact us via email. All right, get rid of this. None, none of us even went to any of these schools. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do we got for the first slide, Richard S.? First slide today, boys. <laughs> oh, man. There we go. First He's slide. Slow. Yeah. It, it was know. the slowest week of, or probably second slowest week of the year. That's so true. Good. Somewhat slow, excused. Right. The slow start to the podcast is reflective of, of it being a very dead week that hopefully a lot of our I, podcast listeners continue to enjoy this you, at the beach. And it has you, nothing to do with anyone being brain dead. You, you say a dead week, but media wise, <laughs> it was pretty big news. No, I mean, it was. All right. Let's get know, to it. Who wants to read the first one? I, I'll start off. But I mean, you had okay. ex at age exclusive Netflix names, Jeremy Gorman and Peter Naylor as its first advertising leaders. Um, I think what's interesting here is what first off, those people rich. Well, well so uh, both of them were Snapchat executives. So like, let's let they both came from Snapchat. So you have the top two 
executives from Snapchat, but their their prior history is what makes this um, a, a, you know employee acquisition so interesting. On the one hand, Pete Naylor came from Fox, but before uh, he went to Snapchat, his last job was running advertising at Hulu. So he was the guy driving the entire advertising strategy of building that business. And Jeremy Gorman was at Amazon before she came to Snapchat, building out their global advertising business. And so you have two very experienced advertising executives going in to build at Netflix. And I think the things that are interesting is one, Naylor's the perfect guy. If you want sort of TV-like advertising, that's what he did at Fox. That's what he did at Hulu. He's purpose-built for that. And I think, you know, the reason Jeremy's probably there, you know, Brendan, we had talked to Reed um, going back when they first announced their advertising strategy, and he seemed very focused on- Or maybe not their strategy, but the fact that <laughs> they were adding advertising to the membership. As yeah, they but, like he, to call it. But, but when he was talking to us, he he sort of referred to- we don't want to look ultimately like a US TV network business from an advertising standpoint. We want to look more like Google and Facebook, or I guess now you'd call it meta. So having someone like Jeremy, who's built sort of a global um, advertising business, sort of makes sense to me that those are the sort of the two that you'd want to build. Someone who's got sort of the skill set that you want for where the business is probably going to start, and then somebody who, where you want to take the business over time. Yeah. And I think take it over time is the key line there, because as we all know, coming out of the gate, they're going to be working very closely with Microsoft. And that's going to probably put a floor under their advertising revenue for them and allow them to move a lot quicker. And there's going to be experimentation that goes on um, through the partnership. However, in the longer term, what does Netflix want to be on the advertising side? Do they want to have most of the infrastructure or much of it in-house, which is going to require some leadership to build a sales force, i.e. Naylor, and maybe even their own programmatic, which, I mean, if you look at what Jeremy did when she was at Snap, she she built that advertising infrastructure for um, for them and made that transition um, for Snap. So I think it's interesting from the Netflix perspective. Now we also have to look at it from the Snap perspective because, Rich, these are two executives that we like a lot um, that are now departing Snap. What does it mean for Snap? Well, I mean, we could, I mean, we could jump over for a second just to the restructuring that Snapchat announced. And it sounds like, you know, they, they basically promoted their CTO uh, to be COO, not something you would normally expect. Although I guess it's happened now. This is sort of the second major CTO promotion we've covered recently because Twitter took their CTO Parag and made him CEO when Jack stepped aside. It, it is not an obvious move to make your CTO, whether it's CEO or COO in the case of Snapchat, I don't think it's an obvious move. Like you would have thought that Snap was bringing in sort of a a sort of top name brand advertising executive to sort of run all of revenue rather than move it into the CTO. I'm assuming that sort of what we're seeing out of both Twitter as well as out of Snap is that- the COO the runs all of revenue? 
reports in, typical, yes. Oh, reports in, but that, I mean, that's not what a COO does. And I think your image of a CTO is being like some nerdy engineer that's like under your desk, pulling, p- plugging in cords into your computer and pulling them out <laughs> is just wrong. I don't think you understand the evolution of the CTO position over the years. These are people that run massive organizations within their companies and is the most, the, one of the most important functions there. So the COO role to me, especially in a like product driven company. Right. For Twitter, maybe CEO, I get it. That's different. And then, you know, there, you know, maybe there's more challenges in terms of, of revenue. But again, to yep. Brandon's point, if it's product driven and it's really about the developments and that's key. So, I, you know, I think you need to have a little greater respect for the, what CTOs do today and, and the role that they're going to be playing at, at companies. I could say the well, same thing about a CMO. Like, why do CMOs ever become CEOs at companies? Well, no, no. It's a great point, Walt, because the reality is when you think about advertising, it's becoming far more programmatic. It's becoming far more driven by the types of advertising products you create. Obviously, things that Apple has done has made the the importance of technology and advertising 10 or 100 times more important in terms of not just the sales part of it, but actually understanding how the tech is built to respect all of the rules and privacy and all of that. And so I think what, what I mean, that's a good over- point. And what is what is Tim Cook's claim to fame? He's a logistics guy, supply yeah, chain. Man. And now he's the CEO of the company and some of the greatest wealth uh, expansion of a company that we've seen, I think, ever. So I think props the, the to the CTOs is, out there that are also our podcast listeners. I'm happy to have defended you. Um, also, you have the COO position, but that doesn't preclude them from hiring a new head of ad sales and true, even true. a new head of revenue. I mean, there are executives out there like a Carolyn Everson, whoever it may be, who have that experience, who could supplement the team. The thing is right now, there is a big hole um, in on the revenue side of the business at a time where Snap, what what did they say? They were, they've grown 8% this quarter, which is so hard to believe when we go back you know, to that Evan Spiegel, we're going to grow 50% for years and years to come. Understand the comps with COVID and everything, uh, you know, albeit that's you know, being lapped and abating um, at this point. If you look at the multi-year stack, you're still, you know. <laughs> it wasn't Zuck ultimately or initially the CTO of Facebook and the Winklevi were the uh, were like the CEOs. All right, we're getting back to that. I thought. Oh, we sorry. Moved, I thought we moved on. Oh no, from, no, sorry. From that piece of the equation. My bad. You can edit that. Um, no, don't flip it out. So, it out. so Snap needs to make some hires. Yes basically. And they have to think about their business model. I think that right now, it's a very critical time now, I think, for Snap and for all of these social platforms that are reaching a more of a point of maturity as they've been around naturally for a very long time. The digital ad world is starting to mature. There is some share shift that is going to occur within it. As new things, you know, come along and may replace them um, or take share, but you know, <laughs> Snap has a lot to deal with right now on yeah. the revenue side. It's still figuring out how to deal with ATT and what Apple has done, and just the maturity of their own business 
as they may need to move to the next phase, whatever maps unlocks it's and AR, et cetera, et cetera, and competition. Yeah, I kind of take a different tact of like, this is, you know, in many ways, the snap restructuring, getting rid of a lot of other parts of their business that they were, you know, essentially screwing around with. If you think about flying drones and they, you know, they were trying to create content for Snapchat Discover. I think to your point, Brendan, they are refocusing on, you know, where can they drive advertising dollars? You know, Maps was a place where we always thought they were going to do a big job in Maps on trying to, you know, it's a huge part of usage and they never monetized it. Um, you know, the, the Discover, like not Discover, the Spotlight, they had never really turned on any meaningful monetization. So I think in many ways, like, I don't know if Snap, I, I wouldn't call Snap mature. I think the advertising market in a slowing economic environment, overall digital advertising is not gapping up the way it did for sure. TikTok is eating everybody's lunch. I think from a usage standpoint, not only is TikTok growing like crazy, but you've even got little apps now like Be Real that have broken onto the scene and are starting to capture some real time spent uh, among the younger generation. Yeah, but no, but I think all of this is like, it's it's not over for for digital advertising. I think the reality is all, you know, I mean, Snap is a small fraction uh, of, you know, Meta and Google. Yeah, you know, but look at Meta. I mean, look at what Meta's top line growth is at this point. Sure. Like, Like for, I think for a lot of these businesses, yes, we are transitioning now into the more AI driven um, recommendation and discovery and new forms of content. Um, much of that driven by what TikTok is doing. But, but why, why is Meta slowing? Like, let's let's actually debate this. Meta is slowing because we don't engagement have to is it. weakening. Because we're no, going to no, agree with a lot of it. No, no, because <laughs> engagement is weakening. Like people are not using it as much. It's not that the ad market as a whole is broken or mature. It's that the well, the, it's interesting a- because you you would say that about Instagram, but we just pulled up a slide two weeks ago that showed Instagram usage continuing to go up and to the right. And we know while there have been headwinds at blue, you also have tailwinds from things like reels, which are going to continue to take share in this sort of new way that people are discovering and being served content. So it's also this. I also think the piece that you're missing is that it was really easy for 10 million businesses across the world to serve text and picture based ads, doing video ads well. And so literally serving ads into, you know, into Reels or into Facebook Meta, into TikTok. I mean, it takes a while to, for businesses to be able to do what they sort of need to do to have that next leg of growth. Because you need okay. more advertisers than just the sort of the, the the big ones that you know of that were doing video ads before. So I think that's a part of it as well. Okay, so you believe that the reason the industry is slowing is the adoption of video is making it harder for advertisers. I think yeah, all those ad units are being bought. Um, in order to get the auction, you need million. You know, if you think about what has made. Facebook so successful. It's having millions of advertisers in that auction all over the world. There's no way Snapchat does not have that today. There's no chance that they have that today. Okay, really what they talk, need to work on, which maybe gets back to Wall's you're point. No, no, but two you're, things, Rich. You're talk, are we talking about the industry 
or right? And are we talking about Meta, TikTok? Put Google aside because there's you know other <laughs> situations there. And Snap, are we talking about them as a whole, or are we talking about each of the individual ones? Is this a Snap problem, or is this a broader industry problem? You seem to indicate that there's a broader industry problem in addition to ATT, which is that video ad creation is something that is too difficult for advertisers. And that is one of the reasons that advertising is slowing. If I take make the leap, what you're saying is you expect industry and across all of these properties, meta ad um, growth to reaccelerate as advertisers learn how to create video ads several years after they started. I think that's accurate that I think you okay. will see, I think you will see the, you know, obviously there's the overall challenges facing engagement and, you know, things like Facebook blue getting crushed, but there is no doubt as reels monetization improves, that doesn't just help meta that also helps Snapchat's um, spotlight. Uh, you know, I mean, TikTok is literally teaching everyone how to create better content, you know, in terms of short form ad content, video ad content. You okay. don't buy it. You're skeptical. We'll say. No, I, I'm skeptical that you put so much weight into the creation of video advertising as being such a large headwind for this industry. I just think it's how you go from having hundreds of thousands of advertisers to millions of advertisers. And I think it's there's a new skill set as, as, as consumption okay. shifts to, to video. The ads have to be video, too. And that is just a much smaller group. I mean, think about how many people advertise on on television. It's thousands of companies, not hundreds of thousands or millions. And so building that set, that data set uh, or that capability just takes time too. Just okay, wait, let's move on. Just wait, Rich, until that capability is go, has to be 3D interactive. But, but Brian and I... Well, I was, was going to say, it's, it's going to be interesting now because... You have Roblox rolling out advertising, um, right? Which is you know coming in a bigger way. You have all of these brands trying to think about creating 3D interactive experiences on Roblox and eventually Epic. And you're telling me they can't even create a video ad. Doesn't um, sound very good for Roblox, I guess. <laughs> you said it, not us. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but Brandon, you I have been a two big two together. <laughs> Brandon, you have been a big proponent of other forms of monetization beyond advertising, especially with the current slowdown. Let's regardless of whether it reverses, why yeah. don't you dig into this slide? Yep. So this is from Snap Inc. Just six weeks in, Snapchat Plus has over one million paying subscribers. Happy Snapchat Plusing! Exclamation point. Um, so subscription is a very popular way to monetize a mobile. There's always low-hanging fruit for your most dedicated users who want additional column bells and whistles. I'm being very trite today. Um, in their experience, we saw Twitter um, roll out blue. Um, Snap rolled out Snapchat Plus, and I think that we should expect other platforms to go in that direction. And to that end, 
Here's a tweet from Alex Heath. Meta is forming a new division to build paid features for Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. VP of monetization at John Wegman tells me that Meta wants paid features to be a bigger part of the biz over time. No, you won't be able to pay to turn off ads. <laughs> Remember all those, I forget the name. It's of the monetizing company. your subscription in a kind of a freemium um, monetization model is all about monetizing your power users that are so into your product that they're willing to spend money to enhance it. And every one of these products has power users or, and or people with money who just don't give a fuck and, and are going to spend it for the best possible experience. So I mean, one, of the, one, of the, one of the crazy things about Snapchat Plus that someone told me the other day is that you can actually use Snapchat on a desktop if you pay for Snapchat Plus. And a lot of schools ban phones in classrooms, but they don't ban laptops. And so it was a way for, you know, That's basically amazing. if you had Snapchat Plus, it's a way to basically use Snapchat while you're in class when you don't have access to your phone. That's amazing. But it all gets to power users. I mean, that, that's the point. Like people who are, you know, power users without. With, with money. And right. when you start to have a user base, I don't know, you know, uh, generally these things will freemium models, you'll get a conversion ratio of two, three, whatever percent. If you start running that through your model and you charge X dollars a month, for some of these features at uh, Meta, it can help with this slowing of growth. That's all. And we've seen the same thing in India. This is from Rutuja. Uh, the first of its kind end-to-end -end shopping experience on WhatsApp just launched with Geomart. Ordering groceries is now as easy as a text experience. Conversational commerce firsthand. And so instead of just subscription, now we're talking commerce. And so you can sort of see how all of, you know, certainly in, in Meta's case, they are sort of, how they're dealing with slowing advertising and the sort of the challenges facing engagement with their core apps is how do we basically pull more revenue out of those apps, whether it's subscription or in this case, commerce. Yeah. And everyone's been waiting for WhatsApp to finally monetize. They've been talking about this sort of textual commerce for a very long time. I remember going back to, you know, the only be or the only challenge I sort of call to all of this, Brandon, is like, is it big enough to matter? Like relative to the scale of the ad dollars, right. like, you know, I don't know. It's like we talk about sort of like people say, oh, the quest sales were really good for for meta. And it's like yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't it move doesn't the move, needle. It doesn't and like, move the needle at all. And that's what I'm struggling but, with. But with it's the, a it's a way to increase ARPUs at a time when ARPUs aren't increasing. And ad business is going to hit maturity. Like the days of Facebook just growing ads, you know, 40, 30, whatever percent. I mean, we're, are we going to see that again, Rich? I know you think there's going to be a reacceleration. I, I do not think you're going to see Facebook grow rev or Meta grow revenues, but could, could Snapchat grow revenues substantially faster than 8%? You know, could they get back into 20, 30, 40, 50% growth if they can you know, to, if if the CTO who's now COO can fix the ad product side and really focus this company, sure, absolutely, it's certainly possible. The numbers are still 
far, I mean, the reason they just moved from 0% to 8% in weeks is just simply because the numbers are relatively small. It's easy to get this thing humming again if you can get, you know, sort of it back on the rails. Walter? Rich, the tweet uh, that you've just placed up is from Phone Arena. It says Apple passed the 50% iPhone market share in the U.S. for the first time. I don't know if that's data is correct. I don't know who they're referencing because I think it's already <clears throat> close to or if not higher than that. <clears throat> Maybe they're including prepaid customers as well that might take them under 50. It's certainly 50 for postpaid was a number that we thought before. But it underscores um, the success that Apple continues to have. They're launching some new products next week. Um, iPhones at their annual September 7th event. We talked about last week how maybe there's some satellite connectivity that would exist there. But, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, you know, you talk about video ads, but on the, there's a lot of video ads, digital ads, print ads for Samsung and their foldable phones, which truly is something that's interesting. But well, is it interesting? Is it interesting? Interesting to whom? Uh, I mean, Samsung's a pretty large market share. So yeah. I say to whom is kind of an ignorant statement about market no, no, no. shares. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what I'll rephrase. Do consumers want these foldable they, phones? Uh, they continue to develop the technology um, and it's improved immensely. I mean, I think the bigger challenge is in terms of the, the innovations of the Apple buyers like yourself that are fascinated by like a slightly better camera every year or better microphone. And that really, that's the innovation that you're looking for in your phones. Um, the, the real thing that's, I think, keeping people in the ecosystem is everything else that they're adding. Um, for example, Brandon, you and I have been sending messages back and forth on our Apple watches, yes. which is a part of Apple Fitness, which is connected to your yeah, but dude, iPhone. This is my problem with, and I love the gamification aspect of the Apple Watch, which has obviously been around for a long time, but I finally got one, um, whatever it was, six months ago. And I love it. It keeps me active, competitive. But dude, this guy, Walt, goes into his pool. And next thing I know, I get a notification that he yeah, did swimming exercise. And then I look and it's like he swam like 40 yards. Oh, like that is not exercise, Walt. That is sunning yourself. And then the other thing I just laugh is Walt does these like one or two minute exercises. And then I get these notifications that he used his Apple Fitness Plus because he did what, like six sit ups. So what Brandon, and maybe that took you what like Brandon two is or three minutes. What Brandon is expressing reflects <laughs> that he does not, in fact, work out. So because if he did use <laughs> Apple Fitness, he would I don't use Apple went, Fitness to work out, but I close my ring again almost every day. Interrupt it again. So let me finish my statement, which is that after the reason Brandon doesn't understand in terms of his lack of fitness use and workout is that when you start a fitness program with Apple Fitness and you don't like it, then you stop it and start the new one. I challenge you to send on Twitter one workout that was for 40 yards on swimming. In fact, it was three quarters of a mile, half a mile. <laughs> Other than a swimming cool down after an Apple Fitness workout, which again you've ex you've now shown that you have no knowledge of because of your lack of use of Apple Fitness. I don't clearly. like that. I, you think I, there's anything I Apple? Can, could... I can see that. Well, 
Children, do you think there's anything, and this is sort of to Walt, is there anything you think Apple could do that would get lined? I remember, I remember used to, you, on iPhone, you know, announcement morning or when the, they would actually become available, you would go take pictures of the lines and they'd be wrapped around blocks. Like, do you think there's anything like that will ever happen again? Like there, in terms of a level of innovation that gets sort of that level of demand? Well, they specifically had um, a person, I forget who it was, maybe it was Angela uh, Arons or someone that wanted to remove the lines so rich they've they purposefully ended the the desire for that now if you're asking about is apple with this massive r d budget ever going to have innovative products again um then the question and the answer is you know I, th- I think obviously tim cook has talked a lot about his interest in augmented reality there's obviously yep. been there's knowledge of people that work at the company about an automated driving car um you know, obviously, there's investments going to Apple TV Plus. I wouldn't certainly not call them um, innovative services, but um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, they spend a lot of money, so hopefully, they can come out with something that's interesting. I mean, no one thinks the AirPods. No, the Air. By the way, the AirPods were kind of a revolution. They well, changed. They still the are. They still yeah. are. I mean, no. Well, they were. They had. You know, <laughs> they created a revolution that put audio in more people's ears for much longer periods of the day. The bottom line, though, is for Apple is that they've added a lot of these services into their ecosystem so that even if you you are among the the handful of people or maybe larger people that are that are fascinated by something truly innovative, like a bendable screen on a phone, that you may still stay within the Apple ecosystem because you want to continue to get Apple Fitness, or maybe you want to get Apple TV Plus for your for your free year. Although there's a lot of ways to get Apple TV Plus for a free year. Um, and T-Mobile today, or not today, but this week, who was previously providing this a year of free service, said added this to be their continual Netflix on us. Now it's Apple TV on us. So if you're a high-end bucket, which we've talked many, many times on this okay. podcast about, um, that they're adding this service to T-Mobile, but it also obviously helps Apple to get you in that ecosystem. Meaning Rich, you think there's, well, no, but let's, let's actually want to stop there for a second. Cause that's interesting. Are there people that have Apple TV? I wonder how many people have Apple TV plus that are non Apple device users at all. It's just an interesting idea. Like, you know, like meaning Android users that are being introduced to Apple through Apple TV plus and whether that actually ends up leading to then buying Apple products over time. I mean, Ted Lasso was a bit of a cultural phenomenon. So I think there's probably some attraction um, to non Apple device users to subscribe to the, to the TV service. Um, But again, that what they're trying to do is, is, you know, not dissimilar to prime. And, and like, if you look at prime, I think, it's today or yesterday when when they're massively funded. I forget what the name of the program is, but another medieval dragons, hobbits, whatever. I mean, but this is just something. It, it that's is included. today. It is today. It's today or yesterday? Was it? No, last no, I night? believe it's today or you know midnight. But I think it's today is the launch. And I may be wrong, but there's a massive budget medieval for that for something that's included. Hobbits. Something. Uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Lord of the Rings prequel yeah. launches today, yeah. and it is hundreds of millions of dollars per season. It's a big, hundreds. it's a big ticket item for something that why to keep to keep you not to drive necessarily subscribers to 
Prime TV Plus or whatever the hell they call it. Um, you mean Prime the TV, Prime, Prime period. TV Max, whatever. It's just Prime. No, right? it's, it's just another it's, service within Prime. Well, the, yeah. The, yeah, the way it works is there's Prime is a bundle of different services. No, I understand that. And, and I was, my point was saying that they're not spending all. Let me restate it. And maybe maybe I restated it. Maybe I didn't state it clearly enough for you. But my point is that they spent a ton of money, not just to get subscribers to a separate purpose-driven, you know, video only, but just one of many things that you get in terms of Prime, which is effectively what Apple's doing with Apple TV Plus in terms of their ecosystem, which with, is different than with Netflix the Apple and HBO Max. Yeah. But the Apple, Apple bundle. bundle. Yes. Yep. The Apple and bundle. Google, of course, has their bundle as well. Right. And the benefit to Apple, obviously, is is where we started this, the 50% share on those $1,000, $1,200 phones um, that generate such good margins for the company. Um, speaking of Amazon and Prime and big ticket items, is there football investment? John Oran's got Amazon's 1.03 million viewership figure for this is for preseason includes over-the-air stations in home markets. In San Francisco, that's 280,000 over-the-air viewers. Houston, 240. Because remember, they air it, 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 even though the national feed's only on Amazon, they have to broadcast the, the local game in each local market. They pick a local TV station and broadcast it over the air. Yep. So that means 520,000 of the 1.03 million viewers came from broadcast TV. And that compares to preseason viewership on CBS. This is Mike Mulville. Uh, CBS and NBC, which was five to six million, Fox was three, ESPN two and a half, NFL Network one and a half, and Amazon was at the bottom at one, which I guess isn't surprising that Amazon's the lowest, as we've sort of talked about. The question is, is when we go into the real season, or the regular season, I should say, does that gap close? Because Amazon was sort of talking about sort of a 12 million viewers down from last season's Fox at 16. Obviously, the gap looks a heck of a lot wider on the preseason, but I don't know if that means anything. I mean, the preseason's the preseason, but I think these ratios that you have up there are indicative of people's willingness to find the content that they that they want to watch. And in the local markets, you're going to find it. But if it's a national game, I think you want it to be as easy as possible for you. More of a lean back approach to finding your content. And so it may be harder to draw the big national audiences in for these games. Whereas the local audiences, if your team is playing, you're going to go find that content. So I really enjoyed um, HBO Max's um, hard knocks. The Lions, Deuce Staley is an assistant coach. I like that the new head coach, the running back was came from my high school, the second running back. Um, but what it showed, which is something that anyone here that knows football knows, is preseason is terrible. No one shows up at the stadiums and no one watches yeah. it. So I outright reject any numbers that anyone posts about preseason ratings. So let's just and let's just talk there's about a, there's a ratio there though right it's still five million people watch cbs and only one million watched amazon okay i sort of so push what... back on that but i sort of push back on that because amazon right now to walt's earlier point rings of power is 100 their focus driving viewership to rings of focus 
My you're, guess is in it's... terms of promotion. So they didn't and, promote it, is what you're saying. I think that's fair. Well, forget about let, promotion. Let, like the Fox, you just literally argued against yourself three minutes ago. It's talking about national games versus regional games. Like it's there, none of these were just national games other than the Amazon. And like in preseason, maybe you check out your local team to see what schmo is, is going to get cut or make the team. But like, again, I don't even know how, why we're what are you talking about Well, they were, you know, how many national games have been available during the preseason, but it's preseason and no one cares about other teams during preseason, you know, but, but hold on. But the NBC, the Sunday night game is a national preseason game. Getting five and a half million viewers is pretty dramatically different than getting okay. one. Yeah, it's I'm talking about the ratio, not the overall scale. Okay. Like, I didn't say what anything was the ratio about of Thursday night? only the- having one million. I said compared to six million, that's low. What was so if we're really going to compare apples to apples and um, what was the Thursday night to Sunday night ratio last year? That's fair. That's a good yeah. way to look at it. And I don't, and I don't you think. Yeah, I don't exactly. Know. I don't have it, I'd but have a lot of these, a lot of these games that have been on have not been on Sundays. True. Okay. We'll see what, like so what, so what, so what, it's what, not like the preseason some, doesn't work like the regular season. Are, are we, are we putting some bets down now? Well, I'm just, I was going to wait for him to finish. Uh, what's the number then? What's the ratings number for, for week one for Thursday week, night? Week one, Amazon. Well, I'm sorry, week one, week one is not. I don't it's think it's actually Amazon week two. I think it's week, week two. two. It's so week what's two. What's Amazon? So what's your what's your over under? I think the over under is two. is nine million viewers. Nine. So now, so nine. now you're going aggressive. What's your over under, Brandon? What was we went through this? I know last week. What was last year's week two Thursday night number? Uh, I don't know week two, but I know on average it was 16 and a half million on Thursday. You know let's let's come back to this. You can prepare your answer above nine next Thursday. Above, I would say above nine, but still dramatically lower. Probably a third off. We we had this debate already last week or the week before. With a number? Not with a number. Yeah, we did. We, did. <laughs> we had numbers. We actually t- predicted numbers. I think you're right. We probably did. We can go we back did. and yes. edit it in. <laughs> It's okay if you don't pay attention to your own podcast. Brandon, you want to read this one? This is from Amal Sharma. Scoop, Disney is exploring a membership program akin to Amazon Prime to encourage more spending on streaming, resorts, and merchandise, people familiar with the matter say. Also, Disney Plus is plotting to add a commerce feature. So we talked a little bit earlier about monetizing your power users and how subscription gives you that opportunity and per- perhaps is a way to drive even more sales dis- uh, among your power users with using discounting in this case. I don't even know about it's discounting. It might, you know, this could be free shipping on Disney merchandise. This could be, you know, I think there's so many different ways. I mean, I almost think about it in as parks, maybe discounting. Maybe or maybe free offers, you know, maybe, you know, um, it, you know, if you book a Disney vacation, you get some form of discount on a hotel that year or maybe early access to theme parks. Like, I think there's many things they could do. I mean, the problem with theme park discounts is you don't go that often, right? Like most right. Disney World visitors don't go all that often. So I don't know exactly. I mean, I think the commerce side of it, 
simple, right? No doubt you could offer, whether it's discounts or even just do a free shipping the way an Amazon Prime does. I think the question is, is like, what other things could you do? What other ways can you engage? I mean, Disney clearly wants to get closer to its fans. When Bob Iger first rolled out Disney Plus, the whole idea was the importance of establishing that direct relationship with your consumer. Direct to consumer and the data that you get and the ability to get to know your customer better and then move them into other ways to monetize in a direct to consumer way. The only point I'd add on here is that all of this ties to things that Disney owns and controls, content, parks, merchandise. The part that doesn't, you know, doesn't really seem to fit is like, where does ESPN and ABC fit in all of this? Like, it's not, it doesn't have that same type of sort of flywheel type aspect to it. And it just, it just makes it, the more Disney does things like this, it makes me think more and more that the cable network and broadcast business is superfluous to their long-term future. That was a big word for me, Brandon. I think it was an essay. Well, I loved it. Um, but I want to sort of segue, because I think the the point of sort of talking about sort of the demise or the challenges facing broadcasting cable networks is we've got this Lucas Shaw tweet, Scoop, Comcast is looking to cut as much as $1 billion from the budget as NBCU. But if you, if you read inside of his article, he goes, executives have explored many ways of cutting costs layoffs, trimming budgets for the development of new programming and changing the mix of programs to produce more low cost shows. It, it, it sort of reminds me when we were talking to Backish and it was like, yeah, primetime is basically going to become what? What I think he said, like reality TV and news, yeah. Brandon. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And of course, sports, right? Uh, fine. Sure. Yeah. When there is sports available and that's it. But all of the, these companies are looking for ways to cut costs as the multi-channel video bundle is, you know, dwindling away as you, you know, give your old good luck bundle hashtag rich. And the transition to streaming has not been seamless as well, they're losing money has stagnated. Right. So it's okay to lose money in the short term if there is a pot of gold at the end of the of the rainbow and you're going to get there. But when you start stagnating subscriber growth at this point while you're losing all that money, then you have a problem and you need to address that through cost cuts. Right. The the, the challenge now is, is as you keep making the programming, you know, worse, less investment. Um, you know, there's a, we have another tweet on the slide, which is sort of the create, not crazy, I guess, but sort of the realities of what, where we are. NBC is considering, this is Joe Flint, stopping programming at 10 o'clock and basically going back to whether it's local news or maybe the tonight show starts earlier. Like, I mean, they're just, these companies are just giving up on, on linear TV. Yeah. It's a death spiral, Rich. It's the complete, we talk all the time about the buzzword, the flywheel. And right. the Netflix flywheel where you got more subscribers, you invested more in content that brought in more subscribers. Yes. This is the actual opposite. You pull content off, less people are interested. You pull more content off, even less people are interested. You death spiral. And then but, are but you here's the problem. To transition into bringing all of these viewers into streaming where you have to pay a la carte for the service. Is your it, content good enough to support it at the same level? Right. But the crazy part is 
how are you going to still subscribe to cable television, right? Like who's going to subscribe as the content keeps getting worse and worse. Like we've been talking about cord cutting at seven, 8% maybe right now. Like you could see it at 10% next year. If this type of trend keeps growing, like if there's nothing to watch other than sports, no, it's sports and it's the old sports is the glue that holds the bundle together. Um, I think if you're a sports fan, as of now, the best deal right, is to buy that bundle rather than trying to mix and match all the component pieces through streaming services, which is not actually possible because there is plenty of sports content that is still exclusive to the bundle. How so about re- you're, how you're about how well talking about exclusive sports fans? How about on the exclusive content? Why don't you read this one? Because this one is sort of, I know it's not sports, but it's sort of the exact opposite of exclusive. This is from the streamable report. Warner Bros. Discovery considering running HBO, HBO Max reruns on TNT, TBS as low cost programming option. Honestly, my reaction to this is this is the type of thing that's been done for forever, right? There, There is always kind of like syndicated content on all of those general entertainment networks they're just using the content from within their own company this time is that going to draw viewers in probably not why because no one really likes to watch content in that way anymore it's much more of a you know serialized approach generally unless the television's just on in the background which means you're probably not engaging with the advertising I just, you know, it just sort of when you're the whole point of these streaming services was sort of exclusivity. It was the only place to go find it. And I just wonder as you start to, you know, does it matter? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the exclusivity doesn't really matter. And that's sort of the mistake all of these services make. Maybe it even increases the excitement around it if you see it in many places. You know, we've certainly talked about that with like Moonbug and sort of kids programming. Adult content, they've sort of focused on everything has to be exclusive. It looks like, you know, WBD is certainly moving against that grain. Yes. And we'll we'll see. It's More broadly. And that could yeah. be within streaming services, too. Like here we're talking about, you know, non-exclusivity on like, quote, reruns. <laughs> like, Not that that's really a thing anymore. Um, on linear, do they go and license their own content that is key to their streaming services to other streamers? to make dollars work. We'll see. time, you know, one show I would not expect to be licensed to a third party though, is Walt's. Uh, I assume this is your new favorite show. Walt. No, Rich, I think it's an average show, but it's, but as I've said, I think um, the reason house of dragon is doing well is, is cause it's community, just like a lot of mediocre programs on Netflix have done well um, because of their general, they, you know, generate community. I think it's probably better than mediocre. It's in the zeitgeist. So I don't think that Amazon's new program is going to derail this. Um, you know, the, the ratings we discussed this last week were in fact up, not as up as, as I, maybe I thought, but certainly up and not down, which is what most people thought. So the question now is, as we head into week three and with the quote unquote competition of Amazon's um, dragons and elves and something program, um, is it going to be up or down in week three, Rich? House of Dragon ratings. I mean, I, I would think, the, I my guess is it goes up again. 
Oh. I think it's building. I think it's building now. I think that's the key takeaway. Well, that's I really fun. do. I'd like to, I always like to take the it, opposite side. I Brandon, say, up or down in week three? The only reason I might say down here is because it's a holiday weekend, right? So I think that there could be some delayed viewing as people are away. The real that's question a good observation, me, but what's your call, up or down? I'm going to say flat-ish week four to week two i'm not sure what the holiday impact will be in week three this is a podcast of precision so if 10 2 okay i'll say i'll say down i'll say down a little in week three only because it's a holiday weekend not i will say i will say 10 and a half i'm gonna say 10 and a half oh we're getting more specific all right i'm gonna take i'm gonna get 10 and a half and since you made it low i'll just say 10 10 7 just okay. Okay. But, but I want to just get, but, for our podcast, but I do want to give one other stat for our podcast listeners or our viewers, whatever. We did some math um, around sort of house of cards, sorry, not house of cards, house stranger of things. No, stranger, stranger things. things? Okay. And, and we're trying cards. to back into, and tr- we're trying to back into how many U S households might've watched stranger things in week one, at least one episode in week one. And we sort of got to, 30, it, it, you know, probably somewhere in the 30s, you know, 33 was the number, but let's just say yeah. somewhere between 30 and, you know, 35 million households probably touched. And so the the HBO premiere of House of Dragons getting to nearly 25 million viewers after one week is a pretty big number. I mean, I think that, you know, just given the size of HBO has a small, you know, 48 million households have HBO versus sort of just under 70 million have Netflix. Yeah. It's a pretty big number well, for HBO. It's it's a it's a huge penetration. It shows you that the Game of Thrones franchise is one of the main reasons probably that people subscribe to HBO at all. Yep. And and uh of course on a seasonal basis when it's on, subscribership is probably going to be higher. I enjoy hard knocks. I'm a sports fan and uh, there's going to be another football thing with the Cardinals in season um, with the Cardinals. So that's, you know, I think, I think HBO has got good content and we'll continue to put out good content. This is clearly the flagship. Everyone always has a flagship, but there's other stuff that I think will, will help the subscribers for our good friend, David Zaslav. Brandon, you want to go to Ticketmaster? Sure. Uh, this is from Flowverse. Welcome, Ticketmaster, to Flow Blockchain and the Flowverse. Ticketmaster will now let event organizers issue NFTs on Flow. This means millions of event fans can immortalize their IRL experience through digital collectibles and access exclusive rewards and experiences. So we knew this was coming that there were going to be NFT ticket stubs. It's something that Ticketmaster had talked about. We didn't know what specific blockchain um, it was going to be on. It's going to be on Flow, which most famously is behind NBA Top Shots. Um, it also shows there's been a lot of questions as to whether Ticketmaster was going to face competition from upstarts that were blockchain first. Um ticketing companies i think good, good is, luck to those companies yeah that's that's a bit of a pipe dream again considering ticketmaster scale vertical integration lock on venues in the u.s but i am personally excited to 
get a return to the ticket stub. I have a very large ticket stub collection and I've missed it over the last couple of years as we move to first PDFs and then digital ticketing. And now we'll be able to have that. Additionally, for the advertising business, um, the sponsorship business, which is growing pretty bonkers at Ticketmaster, um, it says right here, you can access exclusive rewards and experiences. And again, it's an it's also a way as um, people care about these NFTs and perhaps uh, there's more things to do that are attached to them to really understand who the super fans are and figure out how to monetize those super fans. It, which it's definitely is the theme of, the of our call this week. It's a, it's a theme of the podcast this week. What? It it's is the theme a theme of the podcast. Of, yeah. It is a theme of the podcast. Okay. And then here, there is a second tweet on Live Nation Ticketmaster, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to let Walter Pysik react because I know he loves this. Um, theme, New Jersey Congressman, quote, demands answers about Bruce Springsteen and Ticketmaster's high ticket prices. And I think more specifically, if you read the article, he wants an investigation into dynamic pricing and perhaps thinks dynamic pricing shouldn't exist, which to me is crazy. So things shouldn't be precisely priced on a supply demand basis in the primary market such that we should allow, you know, kind of the, I don't want to call it the scum of the earth, but like what really are ticket <laughs> ticket brokers who are buying up using bots to take primary tickets away and resell them. The, the, our congressman here would rather that outcome than the artists get paid directly for the work that they're doing without a middleman profiting off them reaction well i mean it's we we're in a free market capitalistic society which i know some people are against um <laughs> and his and i look i understand some of the concerns that were laid out in that article talking about hey if ticketmaster owns the the stadium and exclusivity yada yada but the theory that like you have multiple people offering tickets that the market will not drive towards people having closer seats paying more money and we're supposed to protect i mean how like I it's all supply right i don't even understand the the concept i mean that is i don't want to use you know the politically charged words that are out there but that's that's just not what our country uh, was built on so um i'm not going to say good luck in getting it done because clearly a lot of things can happen and politicians can stick their nose in, and regulate things in a mommy state um, to, to quote unquote, protect people um, because everyone has a right to sit in the first row, I guess. Um, but look, you know, I think Rapino is doing the right thing and this is the right thing for artists and this is just the way it's going to be. Sorry. Yeah. Just to me, it seems like a fundamental lack of understanding of the way the business actually works, meaning it, to Brandon's point, it's going to happen I mean, anyway. It's going to happen maybe, anyway. That's maybe giving you... certain politicians the benefit of the doubt in terms of lack of understanding. I think it's maybe a goal to move towards a different type of system. Um, yeah, look, one, it, one step at a time. A little I mean, socialist, but I guess. I never use the word, Rich. No, no I know. And I don't I think know. we should use politically charged words on the podcast, but. 
I mean, okay. look, they, will there, can there be technological enhancements some to keep tickets at face value such that they can only be transacted that way? Ticketmaster did build, build something for Pearl Jam. Um, but then there's problems with that too, because you have to very specifically tie to identity. It makes it more difficult to, um, uh, to uh, if you can't attend, to flip right, your you tickets. Get, exactly. It, it makes the whole thing more. There's, there's it, it, no absolutely perfect solution is what I'm going to say. And in the lesser of all evils, I rather see the artist be able to capture the most possible dollars rather than someone on the secondary market. Walt. From Howard Buskirk, uh, T-Mobile, as expected, dominated the two and a half gigahertz auction. That's probably Greek language to many of our listeners. So what we're talking about here is yet another spectrum auction. Spectrum is what makes your cell phone work by the FCC. This was the dribs and drabs that really only benefited T-Mobile. There was speculation at some point that AT&T and Verizon might come in just to fuck with T-Mobile and drive the price up. That did not happen. So T-Mobile, I think step next step here is there's still large chunks of spectrum that are owned by third parties. Um, a lot of it's in New York that that I think they continue to have to buy. They, they recently spent um, a large amount of money for some low band spectrum. So there's still... Believe it or not, Rich, more spectrum for T-Mobile to own. And, you know, if they continue to have success in taking cable customers using their fixed broadband service, um, you know, spectrum is going to help them to provide the capacity that those home broadband customers are, are clearly um, going to have on the network. And that's clearly growing. Like, it's clearly taking share. I mean, I know the well, cable we'll companies keep denying it, but. I mean, Q3 will be very interesting. Charter is a as kind of our proxy is at four hundred twenty dollars a share, so it's not performing well. Um, the question is, you know, how much runway does T-Mobile and Verizon have on taking customers there? I mean, the other bigger risk here, look to Charters and Comcast, is the fiber overbuild that's happening. But surely, you know, surely wireless is having an impact. Um, it's still early days, but Q3 will be another signpost. And by the way, you know, I think we've got a couple of conferences coming up, stuff that I have fun tweeting about. I think it's Boca ah. um, and Goldman. You know, maybe some of these companies update us on subscriber growth. I mean, I think last time Charter kind of said, hey, we may grow, not grow, whatever. And they kind of tried to pre-announce, but then still was worse than what they pseudo pre-announced. So maybe we get some data points in the next week or two on what's going on in this well, area. Well, and I think, look, to, to their credit, I think Comcast did at least sort of admit to sort of the competition element, whereas Charter was still seemed on the conference call, earnings call, I mean, still seemed pretty much in denial. Walt, would you agree with that? Well, I think they partly, they they blame this on kind of school seasonality. So I think, you know, in September, kids go back to school. So we'll see if that helps. And if it doesn't, then well, we'll see what other excuse they can pull out of the bag. Brandon? Sarah Needleman, Microsoft's $75 billion acquisition of Activision could lessen competition, says UK regulator. So we've been very focused on the US and Lena Khan and whether or not um, she would allow this deal to go through. But this is a reminder that these are global businesses and they need to get approval in several different markets. And we already saw an acquisition that Facebook made of 
of Giphy. And that was blocked where? Not in the US, but in the UK. So as much as, you know, of course, Walt is specifically very close to what's happening in D.C., D.C. is just part of the picture. And I think what's the second tweet that was up there, Rich, if you could put it, it on Sony. OK. And then Sony spins up PlayStation mobile division plans, major push to phones. And we've talked again, another big theme of the podcast about this sort of building of cross-platform and mobile becoming every game being being able to be played on mobile, similarly to how Fortnite um, exists, I guess, exists less than it used to now that it's not on iOS. Um, and that Zynga was building PC and console um, capabilities before Take Two bought it. Why did Take Two buy it? To bring those mobile capabilities in house. Everything is kind of coming together. And even Sony now, who always had their own separate device for mobile usage, PSP, whatever it may have been, I remember is, that. Is moving, I remember that. Is, is moving to the phone also. Mobile game battleground. Well, it's just all games are kind of coming together and the distinction between mobile and PC and console is fading away. Crossplay is just the term that we all need to get more and more comfortable with. That's correct. Cosplay? <laughs> that is later. Um, Next. <laughs> uh, we've got something that I know Walt will make you happy, so why don't you read it? Um, from Kurt Wagner, new Twitter is finally rolling out an edit button. You'll get a 30 minute window after a tweet is live to make tweaks, but it's only rolling it out to people who pay for its monthly subscription product, Twitter blue. Well, that's not new, but okay. The Twitter, if you see an edited tweet, it's because we're testing the edit button. This is happening and you'll be okay. <laughs> okay. So they, uh, they gave you the ability for whatever it was, 30 seconds before oh. your tweet posted to um, edit the tweet. Now, this is what everyone has been clamoring. After it's for after it's already posted, you can go back and change the tweet. I know everyone is for this. Um, Jack Dorsey was against it for forever. I personally don't like it because you can change the meaning of what you tweeted after it's already been tweeted and goes viral. And right. So, I think, so if I retweet, if, if I retweet something, I mean, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but this right. is my fear such that I tweet something, you retweet it, and then I go and change the meaning on you. And then you just endorsed or retweeted something that has a different meaning than what you thought you were retweeting. And I think that is dangerous because you can bait people into um, endorsing you on something through a retweet or liking something and then completely change the meaning. So I am very curious to see how Twitter handles that. But that's why I've been against the edit button. Well, well Twitter is clearly more comfortable with a lot of things. I mean, yeah. they, they seem to be exploring yeah. a lot of new desperate. alternatives. <laughs> well, they certainly are exploring new things, Brandon. So why don't you read this from Casey Newton? Uh, new. Twitter was readying an OnlyFans competitor this year. 
okay, an OnlyFans competitor, until a red team intervened and said it would be irresponsible. The reason Twitter's ongoing struggle to remove child sexual exploitation material from the platform. And, uh, you know, this is a reminder from Todd Spangler, OnlyFans creators earned $3.9 billion in 2021, swelling 115% year over year. Okay, uh, look, there's a reason OnlyFans, despite that level of um, profitability, is not a public company. OnlyFans has had several what investigations, lawsuits that they've had to deal with because of the content on their site, um, on their platform, I should say. And now Twitter was actually considering going in that direction. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Rich, that's a little rude to follow a comment about OnlyFans and sexual exploitation with the pen song. (laughs) What in the world? I mean, I had to do that. I was actually so excited the the way that lined up. Um, Well, this is our actual alma mater. Not mine. Not Not yours, Rich, but much of the team. But but which the, we didn't have a lot of sports, but I did once heckle I, a friend of mine played squash and I went to her squash match against I think it was Yale and I was heckling the opponent. A group of us were heckling. We we're sitting on top of the squash court heckling the Yale opponent. The only thing I question I have for you, Brandon, is what is the red team at Twitter and what else have they squashed? I don't know. I mean, I want to meet the red. I want to meet the red team. The red team, and then you're playing the red and blue, which is the pen song that no one can hear. <laughs> oh, God, because it's too low. Do you have it's your actually, toast ready, Brandon? Well, part of the problem is it's also a very short song. No, it's not. Maybe he sent you the wrong one. Here. All ye loyal classmates now in all and campus through, lift up your hearts and voices for the royal red and blue. Fair Harvard has her crimson, old yellow colors too, but for dear Pennsylvania, we wear the red and blue. This is terrible. It is terrible. This is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. (laughs) That's episode 122, everyone. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Enjoy some barbecue. Hurrah for fall. My favorite season of the year. Drink a highball, everybody.